Let's talk hoops. Let's talk crossovers. Let's talk downs. Let's talk hoops. Let's talk rumor. Let's talk opinions. Let's talk truth. Let's talk future. Let's talk present. Let's talk past. Fundamentals and flash. Me running the flow. Stango running the show like a young Steve Nash. I'd like to welcome all of you to the Great Point Podcast. This is the Great Point Podcast. I'm Adam Stanko. Before I bring on one of my favorite people and a guest I know that you'll absolutely love, I wanted to remind you, subscribe to the podcast on iTunes or wherever podcasts are found. That way, anytime we have a new episode, it'll come right up. Matt Muehlbach is our guest today. And he is one of the most underrated players in college basketball history. A three-year starter who played at Arizona from 1987 to 1991, shot 41.9% from three-point territory, finished his Arizona career second on the Wildcats' career assist list, but he's most known for being a winner. Arizona's all-time wins leader, He went undefeated 64-0 at home at the McHale Center and was the first Pac-10 player to win four straight titles. He also recorded the only triple-double in Pac-10 or Pac-12 tourney history. Now he's an emerging broadcaster for the Pac-12 network, but possibly best known for being one of Steve Kerr's best friends. And he's also the third honorable mention All-American from 1991 to appear on the pod Don McLean and Chris Corciani also have that distinction. So, Matt Muehlbach, welcome to the Great Point Podcast. <laughs> Thanks, Adam. That was uh, that was pretty awesome and uh, fired up to be on the Great Point Podcast. Uh, let's do it. Let's let's do it. So, Matt, I want to start out as I ask all of our guests, what is your earliest basketball memory? Wow. Um... You know, for me, and you'll probably like this because because you're a Philly guy. I, uh, for me, it was being a Dr. J fan, and you know, just loved Dr. J, loved everything about him. And I guess I can kind of remember going back to about I was probably seven or eight, and I remember my parents uh, getting me a uh, you know a Nerf hoop, and I think it was for it was for uh, you know my birthday or Christmas or something, and. Just you know, you get you get you set the Nerf hoop up in the in the hallway on the door jam, and just I remember flying through the through the hallway, acting like Dr. J. And um, you'll probably remember the the uh, you know back then they would have I think it was like one game a week, you know they'd have on CBS, and they always had that that teaser, you know it was like you know the doctor is going to make a house call this Sunday in the garden or something like that, and. And I just remember I'd hear that and I'd run into the hallway and, you know, try to jam one. And, and, uh, just that, that was, that was kind of the guy that really got me into it and, uh, loved, you know, loved the hair, loved the, obviously the dunking and, um, just kind of everything about him. I've told, I've told this story, um, to many people, but I, about that time, I remember telling my mom, I, I remember going up to her saying, you know, when I grow up, I want to be a, I want to be a basketball player. And she's like, Oh, you know, it's great. And I said, but I, I also want to be uh six, eight and black. And <laughs> she was, she, she really didn't miss a beat. She just kind of looked at me and she's like, okay, you know, that's, that's great. And she said, now I've got to tell you, you're, you're not going to be black 
Um, but if you pray really, really hard, you might be six eight. So I, I, you know, earnestly started praying for for height right away, and um, you know, never got to six eight. But I feel like I feel like my prayers were were partially answered because I had kind of a my, my parents weren't very tall and. I was probably projected to be about five ten, five eleven. So I got to six two, six three, and like I said, I figured I'd, I I count that as my prayers being answered. Hey, that was good enough, right? Yeah, exactly. So Matt, after that uh, early run on on the Nerf hoop and and the Dr. J love that you're giving to it, and all the breakaway slams and all that stuff. You started to play ball, obviously, at a young age. When did you first realize that you were pretty good at this game? You know, I played um, I played CYO for our for our local church um, in in California, Saint Saint Augustine, and my dad and my my best one of my best friends and his dad were the coaches, and I was right about third grade. And I remember um, it, it was interesting. My dad really had. I, I I owe him a lot for doing this. He 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 made me the point guard, and um, I I remember asking him actually. I I said you know why am why and he kind of explained what the point guard did, and I I asked him you know why am I the point guard because I was one of the taller players on the team, and um, he said well Matt I I don't despite your Dr J story and wanting to be six eight I don't I don't think you're going to be um, very tall, and so you need to learn to handle the ball and play the point and you know, kind of be the, the leader of the team. And uh, so I said, okay. So, you know, we, um, our first year in, in third grade, we actually won the sort of like diocese, you know, championship for the East Bay. In fact, I remember we, I think we played uh, John Barry's team, you know, the Barry family, of course, yes. out the area and, and Rick was with the Warriors and we beat their team. They were, they were eventually all of his brothers and everything. They went to, um, you know, De La Salle High School, and I went to O'Dowd High School in Oakland, but uh, played those guys, and you know, so got kind of a, a taste of it. And then, I think for me, the biggest the biggest thing ever was in fifth grade. We played in a pretty big tournament in the East Bay, and I, I remember um, I didn't play the first game or two because I think I I, I uh, hurt my hamstring or something. And we finished, it was a huge tournament, like 32 teams. And I think we finished like third or fifth. And I remember they called the all-tournament team. And, and I kind of thought, you know, um, I got a chance to make this team because I played really, really well, I thought, you know, late late in the tournament. And, you know, we did well but didn't win it. And they called the all-tournament team. And it was probably, you know, it was like six or seven guys. And I, I didn't make it. And I, I, they didn't call my name. And I kind of was, I got to admit, I was a little surprised. I thought I thought I was good enough to make it. And then they called the MVP, and I was the MVP of the tournament. And I, and I was shocked that I was because, um, number one, I was kind of smart enough to figure out that, you know, you don't really win the MVP if your team doesn't win. And and number two, I didn't, I didn't score a ton. You know, I was kind of a... I don't know, for lack of a better comparison, like a, a poor man's Jason Kidd, you know, ran the team and did a lot of things, but didn't really shoot it, you know, didn't score a ton of points. And, and so the fact that I won that, that was kind of like, well, you know, maybe I'm, maybe I'm doing pretty well at this. And, and, and I, I had to keep playing this. Wow. So in, in high school at O'Dowd, you end up playing against Skyline High School, who has 
Gary Payton and Greg Foster. Yeah. Who yeah. both go on to play in the in the NBA. So right. what do you remember about the experience of playing against those guys? Well, you know, they were I was so I was in the Catholic uh East Bay Catholic League, Bishop O'Dowd. Um they were at Skyline High School, which was which was in the Oakland Athletic League, and that was you know, we played those guys all the time um, in the summer. So we had summer leagues, and our, our coach, we had a great coach, a guy named Mike Phelps, a, a, a legend uh, in California, a legend at Bishop O'Dowd. And um, he, he purposely put us in the Oakland Athletic Summer League. And, you know, it was, it was a rough summer league, great athletes, great players. Um, we played, in fact, we played a team, McClyman's High School, um, that had uh, Antonio Davis, and you'll probably remember the the city. Uh, I mean, the the street legend uh, Demetrius Hook Mitchell, yes, uh, total legend. You know, in 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 the Oakland area, he was with McClymans, and so we played all these guys, and then we played Skyline that had Peyton and and um, and Greg Foster and so forth. Well, one year, my my sophomore year in high school, things were so rough in the Oakland Athletic League that they actually closed games to all fans. They wouldn't let any fans go. Literally, parents, friends, aunt and uncles, grandma, nobody could go. And so, um, you know, it was just the team and the refs and the scorekeepers. So they had a, they had a tournament um, my junior year, and um, we, played, we played in the championship of the tournament in Oakland, and we played Peyton's team. And I think we were ranked one and they were ranked two and, and they beat us pretty easily. They beat us by like seven or eight points, kind of controlled the game. And I remember going home and, and my mom saying, well, you know, that was, that was, you know, it was a good game. They played really well, but the important thing was, you know, like nothing, there were no fights that broke out. And, um, it was kind of a, the tournament was like really made. So it was kind of like, Hey, we're going to let the fans back in this year. And so I, I remember telling her saying, well, you know, we ha we haven't played them at our house and we play them, you know, next week at O'Dowd. We just happened on the schedule to have played them. And so we played them the next week at O'Dowd. Um, we actually played great. They didn't play as well. We were winning by, I think, four points with about a minute and a half to go. Their coach or someone on their team ended up getting a bunch of technicals. And I mean, literally had like, like like four or five technicals. So I was I was about to shoot I think like 10 free throws, <laughs> you know, with about a minute and a half to go. So it was it was kind of clear we were going to win the game and their coach or somebody took their team off the court and um they go off the court and, and a riot ensued. <laughs> and so <laughs> our team literally had to had to run into our locker room and barricade the door and you know a lot of the a lot of the kids that were there were like coming after us and um it was it was a flat out riot at, on our court and they had to bring you know the the police came in and everything so I, that probably wasn't what you were asking for but it was a it was a it was actually awesome i mean it was very competitive um but i just i remember playing those two guys i mean they they were both as you can imagine so incredible um playing against Peyton was you know, playing against him my junior year and playing him in the summer league was, I mean, probably the best player I've ever played against in my life. So going back, you know, to play him in high school is, is something, you know, obviously I'll never forget. And it was cool because he was, he, I saw him, actually, I saw him at a game 
I was doing the Oregon State UCLA game this year and saw him after the game. He was he was incredible. Like walked up to him and said, "Hey, you know, I I wasn't sure he'd remember me." And um totally, you know, he totally did and gave me a big hug and we were it was great cuz we were reminiscing about those games and and you know, just our high school teams and and all of that and so it was it was fun to fun to connect with him. What kind of player was he at that time? You know, he was he was the he was the same player you would think. Um, you know, had that kind of cocky, you know, head to the side, you know, sort of like I'm the man. Um, you know, he was one of the reasons he was the hardest player I I probably ever guarded because he was just he was so tough and he was he was mean. You know, like I say this I say this as a compliment. He was mean. Right. You know, he, he he just and he was he was really physical. And he wasn't one of those guys like, and I probably the best ball handler I ever played against was Kenny Anderson. I mean, just an absolute jet. You know, he was crossover before there was Allen Iverson and you know those type of guys. Mm-hmm. And but Peyton just kind of like physically bullied you. You know, he imposed his will on you at all times. And honestly, for me, you know, he wasn't a great shooter at that time, and obviously became a better shooter. But I was more afraid like taking the ball up against him than guarding him, you know, guarding him, you know, he'd score on you and you could get help. And, you know, sometimes you'd play zones and, you know, you'd have to force him to shoot. That's the only way you could really stop him. Cause he could, he could flat out play the post, you know, at that age. And so if you were guarding him, he'd just bring you inside and you just kind of, like I said, you know, impose his will. But um, the, he, on defense is where it was hard. Cause, cause you know, you bring the ball up against him and you just you felt like you were just you it was a you know you literally had to almost like do everything you can just to get rid of it you know so so he wouldn't steal it that that was the hardest part of it um but i always laughed because you know what was cool for me is he never really talked trash to me but he talked trash to a lot of people um in a fun way in a super fun way um you know he was just such a competitor and and um and and just loved his style Watching him from afar at Oregon State, he was one of my all-time favorite college players. He was Sports Illustrated National Player of the Year. A few years ago, I created a list of the top 100 point guards in college basketball uh-huh. from 1985 to 2005, and uh-huh. he was my number one. Uh, the guy was uh-huh. completely dominant, and you know his college career sometimes people don't look at in the same way they look at Bobby Hurley's or Jay Williams is as far as college point guards and, and guys that, that truly stand the test of time, Kenny Anderson, um, Jason Kidd, but Gary Payton's college career was just unbelievable. I mean, you could score like you talk about and defensively, obviously a complete monster, but Matt, for you personally, I'm curious about the, the AAU scene at that time, because you and I have spoken about this before and you've told me just how wild it was. So yeah. explain how how your AAU program was was funded. <laughs> well, I, I play that was right about the time, you know, 85, 86 was right about the time AAU was just happening. And I played on several different teams. Um, I played with with one guy, a guy named Ruben Luna, who's, who's from the Barry, who was fantastic. Great coach, you know, did a great job. The interest, the 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 other teams that I played on were the interesting ones, and and um, you know, and what what coaches would do a lot is they would take 
they would take the best players in their area and they would they would also have a B uh, so that's the A team they have a B and a C team and they would fund you know the entire thing with the B and the C players and you know a lot of the B and C players had had families that could afford you know to uh, to pay for this exposure and go to Vegas or wherever the tournament was. There really weren't that many tournaments. Vegas was like the biggest one, and there were a few more local ones, but Vegas was the big national tournament. Um, and I remember, you know, the, the the and they were happy to do it, you know, to fund it because they were thinking, hey, this is our chance to, you know, to get seen at a at a big location. And, you know, to be honest, the 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 A team probably like you know ninety percent of the players played in college somewhere. Um, whether it was a big school or at least somewhere. And, you know, candidly, the, the B and C players really didn't play very much um, or didn't have the opportunity to play in college. I mean, it was just kind of a it was it was a way to for those coaches to to make some money and then really underwrite or fund, you know, the, the, the rest of the deal. But we were it was the Wild West. I mean, it was you know, we would go to Vegas um, my parents, if they ever knew like, like what happened at those things, like, you know, very little supervision, <laughs> we were out there, you know, fortunately some good guys on the team, but we, you know, you're in Vegas and you're 17 or 18 and, you know, pretty much anything's open and, um, and guys are doing some crazy stuff and, and it was, it was fun. I mean, there, there was one trip we went on that I, I remember, I recall, we made it to the semifinals. In fact, we played, I'll tell you a quick story, but we played uh, uh, we another street legend. I mean, the one thing I, I've, I've had for my life, so I played two of the greatest street legends of all time. I mentioned Demetrius Hook Mitchell, but played against Lloyd Daniels. And Sweet Pea. And New York team in, in uh, Sweet Pea, yep, in Vegas. And I'll tell you that in a second. But we, we lost that game, and that morning, I remember, we ran out of money. I mean, so nobody had any money left. And we, we basically, you know, had to, had to go eat somewhere. So we went to, I think we went to Denny's and, and ditched and dined, you know, and basically we told, like, we had to eat somehow. And a couple of the guys on the team, you know, probably had 20 bucks or 40 bucks or something. And, and, uh, but I'm sure no one had a credit card, you know, we didn't have credit cards at that time. And it was, it was, it was not the whole so AAU we, team just runs out of debt. Runs out. Yeah. They were totally on, totally out of financing at that point. And, uh, it was, it was fun though. That I'll tell you that, that tournament. So I played, I played against sweet pea. I played against the, their team was the uh, New York gauchos and anybody that knows AAU ball, you know, would know that name. And I saw in, in my mind, one of the greatest basketball games I've ever seen um, the quarterfinal game, so we, we won our quarterfinal game. I don't remember who we beat. And so we were going to play the winner of the other quarterfinal game in the semis. And it was it was the New York Gauchos against an L.A. team. And frankly, I forgot the name of it, but it was it was Sean Higgins' team. And oh, wow. at that time, yeah, at that time, Sean Higgins was probably the number one or two player in the uh, in the country. And uh, who's the guy that went, I think he went to Illinois was the other one or two player in the country. Um, gosh, I forgot his Marcus name. Marcus Liberty, maybe. Yeah, Marcus Liberty. Yeah, great memory. So Marcus and Sean were like the most well-known guys, you know, in high school at that time, one and two in the country. And of course there was there was Lloyd, 
but nobody i mean only the only the street people and the street legends and the people really in basketball knew who Lloyd Daniels was because he had been to a bunch of high schools and he was on none of the you know rankings list and that kind of thing but we were there and we all knew about it and i had heard you know the legends i'd heard all the stories and and he, this guy is you know basically could pass like magic and shoot like bird and you know had had just you know the a flow like like george gervin or something and and uh, so we won our game and i mean every guy on our team stayed to watch that game and you know most of those games were pretty crowded they they might have been you know close to a sellout this one was you know, classic high school, sold out, you know, standing room only, you know, a lot of great, you know, obviously all the coaches there, like, you know, you'd have Bayheim and Dean Smith and every coach was there, John Thompson, whatever, and watch those two guys play. And Lloyd Daniels was ridiculous. He lived up to every bit of hype. He, he, I mean, dominated the game it was one of the greatest performances I've ever seen. He played, and, and Higgins didn't play bad, but I mean, Lloyd was doing things, and, and a lot of it, they would guard each other, you know, because they were literally the same size, both about 6'7", six, 6'8", six, you know, probably, you know, 200 pounds, and he was doing stuff like, I mean, this was, you know, 10, 15 years before, like the and one scene, or 10 mm -hmm. years before that. He was doing stuff like, if he would have put the ball behind his shirt and, like, you know, acted like the Globetrotters, I wouldn't have doubted it. I mean, he he was throwing balls behind his head and off, you know, you know through his legs. And, and one of the greatest performances I've ever seen to this day um, in a packed gym like that, it was, it was really, really cool. And um, so I, I got a chance. It was great because we played them the next day or the next, yeah, the next night. Um, and that was the day we, we ran out of money. Um, so <laughs> if we had won, I'm not sure what we would have done. I'm not sure where we would have stayed if we had won the game. But I, I guarded him pretty much the whole game. And honestly, he like he was really cool. I don't think he cared. Like he knew the big game was the night before and I did a pretty good job on him. And, you know, it was a super close game. And by the end, of the, I think I like I say, I held him, but it was more like he just wasn't into the game. And by the end of the game, they, you know, he got a couple late buckets, and I think they won by four. And uh, then we were out of there. <laughs> so that was it. I think Sweet Pea is one of the all-time what-if stories for sure, not just based upon what you're telling me, but everything that I've ever heard about the guy. And he eventually did get a, uh, a cup of coffee with the San Antonio Spurs, if I recall correctly in the league even the, uh, when Tark was there uh, because Tark had recruited him and all uh, to UNLV but that's just that's crazy and Sean Higgins if memory serves me correct played I know he played on Michigan's national championship team yeah. in 89 and I think he left for the NBA right after the uh, they won the title so well no he he actually played the next year cuz we played them up in Oh the, yeah uh, you're right you're right off classic and i remember him being um in that game in fact i remember late in the game we were winning the game and and we were in our huddle you know people would huddle at the free throw line and Higgins like came into our huddle and was like you know kind of like <laughs> goofing around like listening to what we were saying and and we i don't know what we said to him like you know whatever talking smack to him but so yeah. he played in that game and um you know great player i mean he was he was obviously really uh he was kind of one of the early you know he wasn't as athletic or as strong or as dynamic as a guy like sean elliott but him and liberty were that you know that kind of 
you know, that new innovative kind of, you know, three man, the six, eight the guy that could do everything. Yeah. You almost feel like those guys would have excelled much more in today's game than even yeah. back then. And they were both very good college players, but um, right. yeah, almost before their time in a sense. Yeah. You see a lot of those guys now, those incredibly athletic wings, probably your teammate, Sean Elliott, paving the way for those guys to have success. Uh, Matt, as far as forget their recruiting, but your recruiting goes, uh, when did all that start to ramp up for you? So a lot of it ramped up after that tournament. I played really well in that tournament. Um, I was fortunate enough uh, to get invited to the, to, back then it was called the Nike camp. I think they call it the Nike ABCD camp mm-hmm. um, back in uh, Princeton. And um, so I, in fact, I remember my team back there was something like um, I had Brian Williams and uh, Sean, uh, let's see, uh, Sean Kemp and Richard Dumas. And it was <laughs> Chris Gent, a guy that played at Ohio State. I think they took Williams off our team because we, in a way we were too good. Um, but it was, it was the best of the best, you know, I was, and I was sort of guilt, guilty by association in a way. And I remember that the first game there, I played really, really well. I just, you know, did my thing and kind of handled the ball, hit some jumpers. And from that point on, kind of, you know, a lot of the big schools started talking to me and, um, I, I got a little national publicity because of it. And Arizona was kind of the one that was first on me and, and, um, I was, I was at that point, I was really, really, you know, I, my whole dream forever was to play at Stanford. I was a Bay Area kid and, you know, a pretty good student and, and, you know, the thought of playing at Stanford and, you know, getting that academic education, obviously, and playing in the Pac-10 was sort of my dream. But then it was, you know, then I had some bigger schools in terms of basketball history and, and, um, you know, started the process, you know, right, right after kind of my junior year. And that summer, right before my senior year is when all the, uh, you know, the home visits and the, and the, the visits at the, uh, at the school started. And I want to get into some of the specific home visits, including Kevin O'Neill recruiting you to Arizona. <laughs> but right. b- before we even jump into that, because KO is a, is a whole other subject uh, matter altogether. But before we get into that, I'm always curious about what it's like as a high school player and you go from somewhat obscurity. And even then at that time, you know, the attention obviously isn't what it is today, but still to all of a sudden be showing up and on national rankings and being talked about as a, one of the best players in the country and, you know, coming off ABCD camp invite and then playing well at ABCD camp. What was that period of your life like? You know, it was, it was like the greatest, um, it's like the greatest moment of your life, really. It's it, from that point. And for me, it was really, it was great because, you know, I came on a little late, I, I, even though I, I played a lot at O'Dowd as a, I started as a sophomore, but again, I was not a prolific scorer. So I didn't, you know, people didn't come out and see me, you know, score. I, in fact, you had Corciani on, like, I remember like he averaged like 35 a game in high school. And <laughs> I, I don't think I've ever scored 35 in a pickup game. And, and so I would, you know, those guys, I just like, I love those guys. And so the, they weren't on me huge. And in fact, I remember uh, Bruce Pearl, you know, the Stanford assistant coach, he was with Tom Davis at the time. He came out and watched me play. It was early on in my junior year. 
Um, I, and I totally choked, you know, kind of stunk up the gym. It was my first real big game where I knew a recruiter was coming, didn't play well. And he, he literally told my coach, he's like, you know, we're not going to recruit him. And, you know, he, he seems like he can play, but we're not sure where and probably not a Pac-10 player. I actually had another coach, <laughs> head coach for Cal at the time, tell me I couldn't play in the Pac-10. And they were probably both, you know, not wrong. I mean, I kind of was a little bit of a late bloomer. Um, and, and, and then I played really well, you know, late in my junior year. And then we, we went to the state final in California and, and literally, I, so I was a big, you know, movie buff and I love that movie, Robbie Benson one-on-one. And you remember when he goes there, you know, at the beginning, he can't play at all. And by the end of it, he's telling his coach, you know, we're, <laughs> we're to stick the red hot poker or whatever it was. <laughs> and, and, uh, but so after the state final, all of a sudden I started getting all these offers from literally teams that, you know, weren't even offering me anything, you know, Stanford and, and, uh, and all the Bay area teams like Santa Clara and, you know, uh, teams like that, you know, sort of, um, D one schools, but maybe not pack 10 other than Stanford. So once all that happened, it was, it was amazing. Like it was everything I dreamed about. Um, I was totally, you know, uh, into it, engaged in it, loved all the, you know, setting up all the visits with these incredible coaches. You got Luke coming in and, uh, uh, Larry Brown from Kansas, Norm Stewart from Missouri and, um, you know, Mike Montgomery from Stanford. You just got all these great guys coming in and, uh, it was, I was, I was soaking it up. Other than the Arizona staff coming to see you, what was one of your fondest memories in terms of a, a coaching visit? You know, Larry Brown was awesome. And I he came actually Danny Manning's dad was an assistant. Mm-hmm. Um Alvin Gentry was an assistant with Larry. <laughs> and it's amazing because obviously basketball is such a small world and Alvin, you know, coached then he went to the NBA. He was the head coach at Detroit with one of my best buddies, Judd Bushler. Then of course my one of my best friends Kerr hires him at at uh, Phoenix when he was the GM. And then, of course, Kerr hires him at at the Warriors, you know, to be his top assistant. And I swear that was that was in 1986. Uh, I will I saw Alvin, you know, with the Warriors last year or the year before that right away, you know, recognize me. Hey, Matt, how you, the nicest guy in the world. <laughs> and that I always remember that visit. And I asked, you know, Larry Brown was was so impressive to me. And after the visit, it's all, I really kind of turned to my dad, and I was like, man, I would like to play for that guy. And, um, you know, Danny Manning's dad was great. But I asked Larry, you know, what, the one thing I asked him, I said, you know, Larry, you, you've, got a, you've got a history of kind of moving around. You know, are you going to be at Kansas for very long? And he, he just – he was dead honest with me. And he said, you know, Matt, um, I do. And I'm not going to promise you I'm going to be here all four years, but I, I think I am. I hope I am. And, but, but who knows? And that almost like kind of, in a way it sold it for me not to go there. Um, in addition to that, they just recruited Kevin Pritchard. Um, he was a freshman and kind of played my position. He was a great player. So I kind of had a guy in front of me. And so that, that kind of sold it not going there, but he was, he was like just the coolest guy I thought. And, as you could tell, he knew basketball, you know, up and down. So the big one, as just reference, Kevin O'Neill, who's <laughs> been on yeah. the podcast, mutual friend of ours. And anyone who knows KO knows he is one of college basketball's all-time characters. 
And I've right. told him this in person. I told him on the podcast. Actually, I've told him a bunch in person. But I think he's also one of the most misunderstood people in the game uh, for many reasons. His knowledge is remarkable. His work ethic is crazy. And I yeah. think a lot of people think of him uh, as this fiery, angry guy who's not very nice. And I think people that have spent time with him love KO. They they love to be around him. They don't. They know how funny he is, how charming he is. He's just uh, something else. And the best storyteller I, probably I've ever met. Yep. When's the first time that you met Kevin O'Neill? So I think the first time was was on the home visit. And, um, it, it was, it was hilarious because, you know, so the, I played well at the Nike camp. The first call I got, or my dad got was from Kevin O'Neill. And he said, we want to recruit Matt. I talked to my dad. I remember after the first game, he said, somebody from Arizona, you know, just called and, you know, this Kevin O'Neill guy. And so from that moment on, you know, I talked to him on the phone or, you know, he would send countless, he would send a, a recruiting note or letter or something every day. And sometimes it was like seven a day, you know, <laughs> seven letters a day, relentless worker, relentless. And he would, he would do weird things. He would send me like, you know, postcards with bubble gum on it and say, you know, we're going to stick with you and, you know, corny things, <laughs> but like he knew they were corny and, and he was just, he was crazy. And, and in a way like, but super funny. Um, and I think he sensed a little bit of, a little bit of, you know, maybe a little bit off the rails with me too. Like we, and we just hit it off and totally hit it off. Um, the, when he first came up on my home recruiting trip, I remember him and Lute came to the door and I had moved back to Kansas city at the time. We sort of lived out in the country right outside of Kansas city in, in, in Stillwell, Kansas, and they'd gotten lost and they opened the door. And Kevin, I could tell Lute had been just like, like all over him because he got lost, couldn't figure out where to go. They were like an hour late and he just looked crazy. His hair's all up out of place, you know, and he just comes in and just, you know, and him and Lute together stole the show. You know, they were, so I, I met with Kansas and a bunch of other people. Once Arizona was there, I literally, they left and it was like, I, I think that's where I'm going. I mean, I could just tell, you know, those two and they were so different. You know, Lute was so put together and, you know, old school and, and just, you know, talk, you know, very, very sort of steadily. And, and KO was just nuts. And not right in front of my parents, too. Not a problem, you know, cussing a little bit. Not a problem like he, he probably had a beer like during the, the visit. And, you know, just it didn't matter. I mean, just totally, you know, genuine. I was told to ask you about the gorilla suit story. <laughs> yeah. Well, that was, that was actually, that was actually, um, when Sean Rooks and Mark Georgeson showed up and I think it was right around Halloween. And that was, you know, back in the, in the, in the, uh, days where you could go right to the gate and he showed up in a, in a gorilla suit for, for no reason. I mean, I guess other than it was maybe close to Halloween and they, they both came out of the plane and he's got a gorilla suit on and you know, they, they're like, what the, what's going on here? And uh, my my favorite story with him when I got to Tucson on my trip was we got in the car and we started driving to Tucson. We started driving, and at that time, you know, it was just it was like it was barren, you know, and it was it was not that pretty. And and I remember him sensing that with me, and he looks over and he said, "Pretty ugly, isn't it?" 
<laughs> I kind of like, I was like, what do you mean pretty ugly? And he's like, yeah, it's pretty ugly out here. And I'm, you know, just like that <laughs> shocking statement. He's supposed to be like all the other coaches are telling you how great you are and how great our campus is or whatever. And <laughs> I kind of, I kind of was like, yeah, it kind of is. And then he said, well, we'll wait till you get to campus. It'll blow you away. You know, that was like his, his way to set it up, but mm-hmm. super intuitive, really smart. One of the best defensive coaches, you know, I've ever played, played for. Matt, before we even jump into that, it, it, it's kind of wild just how many twists and turns your your high school journey went. You referenced it. You end up in a school in Stillwell, Kansas, Rockhurst, where you're actually a member of that school's Hall of Fame, despite only playing one year on the <laughs> basketball team. But I, I think it's for good reason. 27-2 and record. You win the 1987 state championship, school's first title in over 50 years at the time. Uh, all district first team, all metro first team, all state first team. So, tell me about that championship game. Yeah, it was incredible. We we actually saw Hoosiers the night before, and um, I remember going back to our rooms and like everyone was all fired up and like, oh yeah, this is you know this is us. This we're you know, and we're in the middle of you know Missouri at the time. We're in Columbia, Missouri, playing at the MU campus. So it was the Missouri State title. And I remember telling some of my teammates, I'm like, guys, um, that, that, that's, that's not the best news. We're playing this nobody team from the middle of Missouri. They're the actual team in Hoosiers that won the championship, not our team. We're from, <laughs> you know, big city, Kansas City. We're that like 27 and, you know, 26 and two and ranked number one in the state. I said, that, that's not, that, that didn't make me feel any better. But, you know, played in the state final there. I actually was lucky, played with, uh, awesome coaches there. We had some, we had some great coaches, um, and played with a guy named John Cooper that is now the coach at Miami of Ohio. Uh, he was a terrific player, played at, at uh, Wichita state, played with a guy, Chris Heller that played for Missouri, a six, nine kid. But the, the, the secret to our team was we had some incredible football players. You know, we had a guy, Tim Ryan, that was the number one ranked, um, uh, linebacker in the country, and we had another guy who was the number one ranked. Kenyon Rashid was the number one ranked fullback, and so it was. Wow. It was a kind of a football uh, powerhouse school. They had won the football state title, and so this would be. We were kind of the pressure for us was to win because it'd be the first time ever in Missouri history that the football and basketball team won. You know the top sort of five A level, and I, if my memory serves, I think we went overtime and had to go overtime to win the game and it it was it was great because it was that team that we played was was the total underdog they played awesome we were kind of a classic game where you know we 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 should have won easily and and i think we were you know the pressure to win because we were supposed to win was not easy and we we ended up winning in overtime so that was that was pretty amazing because i left i left a great high school at odowd um to go to kansas city and then to be on you know another state championship was was incredible obviously well i think it says a lot about the kind of player that that you were at, at the time i think i'm missing the obvious question that is here you are as you bring up this great player from the state of california you end up in Stillwell, Kansas. How thrilled were they to be getting, you know, this nationally ranked player to show up? And and how much uh, dissension did it did it create? You know, it, it was it was interesting because they had they had uh, played in the state title the year before, and they had lost by thirty. And I talked to somebody, and I said, "What happened?" They said, "Well, we didn't really have." 
um, you know, we didn't have the classic point guard. We turned it over a lot. We played a you know real athletic team from St. Louis. So we, we need a point guard like that was it was it just worked out perfectly. And it was kind of interesting because it was the school my dad went to where he grew up. Um, all my cousins and uncles and everybody went there. And so I, I got there and they just, you know, they were they they were talking more about my dad than they were me. And he was he was a football player, not a basketball player. So it was pretty cool to to, to do that and, you know, play it. At a, like I would look up and it was cool because my dad had one of the one of the track records for like the 60 yard hurdles or something back then. <laughs> so it was cool to look up and see his name and, and, um, and, and play for the school that he played at. That is, that is pretty cool. So fast forward. Now you finish up your senior year, you made your commitment to Arizona, you show up on campus and there's some pretty good players at Arizona, even if the rest of the country maybe hadn't figured it out yet. What was that early experience at Arizona like? You know, I knew like the first day, that, like the first week we got together, I I really thought, and I had no experience in college, obviously, I thought we, this, we could win the title. I mean, it was, the the chemistry that we had was, was the best chemistry on any team I've ever played on. It, it was so incredible. Um you know, we had obviously Kerr was our point guard. Um, we had the talent, huge talent, Elliot and Anthony Cook and Craig McMillan. Um, you know, we had Tom Tolbert uh, at the center of the four position. We had talent off the bench, you know, Judd Bushler and uh, Kenny Lofton, who, of course, played baseball. And we just had, we had an unbelievably, you know, together team that loved playing together. We knew it's just weird. We knew from day one that we had a chance to be good. And as you said, no one really knew. I mean, Arizona at that point was not Arizona. It was not Zona. It was not what people think of as today. It hadn't really made its mark. It had never been to a Final Four. It had had some, some good history in the 70s and, and early 80s, but, but I mean, late 70s, really. But that was it. And so it had not really hit the national scene like it, like it did. when it, I just got there, literally, Adam, at the, at the perfect time. So what was the relationship like with Kerr at that point? You know, he was a senior. And so uh, what was great was um, he was he was one of those guys that was great to everybody, you know, and he like he had like a thing with every guy, you know, like there was probably some story like little thing that every guy had like an inside joke with. And that's just the way he was with every player. Um, the, The fortunate thing for me was just to watch him, you know, and I played against him, you know, every day and I was not playing a lot. And so I got a chance to play against him and, and Kenny Lofton and, and Kenny would embarrass you. I mean, Steve wouldn't embarrass you, but he just, you know, would work you (laughs) and just to watch him work and watch him, you know, how he, how he prepared and shot and did everything. And it, it, the one thing I, I I was talking to him, you know, during I talked to him, I think it was the first game of the finals this year. I, I went up there and watched it. And I was laughing because I was telling we were telling this talking about this story that he called me before game five against Oklahoma City. And he was like and he called me like on the way to the arena and I was at work and he called me and I, I'm like, Steve, what's up? And he's like, oh, I wanted to tell you the story about golf or something. It was some golf story. And I'm like you guys have a game in like an hour and a half. It's game five, you know, like, like, what are you talking about? You're talking about golf, you know, and he, and, and, but the story I remember from my freshman year was we were in the Alaska shootout 
and we were playing the championship game and it was it was Syracuse and again it was a huge game for us because we hadn't really you know hit the hit the, the the national scene and we had just beat Michigan the night before and if we had beat Syracuse um, it was obviously a huge huge thing for us and I remember going in the back of the bus and he's back there uh, with this little TV and he's, I'm like, what's he doing? You know, he's, we got the, we're going, we're heading to the game right now. And, you know, everybody's got their stern faces on and he's got this little TV in the back and he's watching. And I said, what are you doing? And he's like, I'm watching the, uh, you know, U of A ASU football game. <laughs> and like, like that was the most important thing in the world. Like there was like, he wasn't even going to a game. Right. And it was one of the coolest things I've ever seen. And, and ever since I've, you know, been around him, that's the way he's been. He's been able to, I think, you know, take incredibly big moments and, and really make them not big um, and, and be really, you know, be really calm about them. And you look back and he, you know, hit the game winner with the Bulls, you know, coaching the Warriors, you know, head guy on TNT in the final four. And so just has this amazing ability to be really normal in, in big situations. Yeah, I mean, the way you talk about him and the way others have talked about him, it's really remarkable just how normal he does seem to be. And I know you've described him before as having that Midas touch. Everything he seems to do, whether it's GM of the Suns or, you know, oh, I'll coach the Warriors. I have no coaching experience, you know, but I'll just coach the Warriors, the best record in NBA history. Oh, I'll play with the Spurs for years. I'll play with the Bulls and hit a game winner. Michael Jordan passes me the ball. It's 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 remarkable to see, but you were there at the beginning, and you talk about that calmness, and I think people don't remember just how good of a player Steve Kerr was. You know, uh, John Feinstein wrote the book, A Season Inside, which followed a whole bunch of different college basketball storylines, and Kerr stole the show in the book. He Feinstein just come, keeps coming back to this idea that Kerr is a remarkable figure, not just for how talented he is and for his story that a lot of people may or may not know that you know he was barely recruited out of high school the story goes that Lute Olson took his wife to go see Kerr play and his wife's looking at him and saying that can't be the guy you're actually thinking of recruiting <laughs> and so but that's he true. ends up going to Arizona that, that's a true story I assume Matt that's, that's a true story from what everything I've heard um, you know, it's, but all those, you're right. I mean, you, you think of that, that, like you said, kind of Midas touch and being in those situations and, um, and, and from a guy that, but you, you know, the thing I think you mentioned the John Feinstein, I think the reason John probably loved him is he, he wasn't vanilla, you know, he was, he was really irreverent and really smart, but irreverent at the same time. You know, had and a guy that you know we've always joked, uh, Steve and I, that you know has a temper. You know, and and a guy that we always quote the the Arthur Ashe famous quote that was is something about you know beware of the fury of a patient man, and and we we both had that same that same personality, um, and uh, he was he was one of the greatest angry shooters I've ever met, and if you made him mad. You know, and a lot of guys wouldn't play well if you made him mad. But he was, he he had an edge to him. I mean, remember this is the guy that 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 fought Michael Jordan and was not necessarily a winner in that fight. So that was, you know, but has it has an incredible edge and competitiveness. But at the same time, 
you know, super normal, super humble, um, you know, and, and, and can kind of be with, with, you know, he can sit down with the president of the United States and be super normal and sit down with, you know, someone at, at, at a, you know, your local uh, coffee shop. Where do you think all that comes from? You know, I've wanted to ask him about where the competitiveness comes from because his parents were, you know, you know, his mom who's still alive and his dad who's deceased now, incredibly smart, you know, professors, um, very thoughtful, you know, conscientious, and he has all that. But I, you know, I've known his mom. I never knew his dad, but you know, very gentle, you know, and kind of you can see sort of compassionate. Um, but I don't get the the crazy sort of competitive streak that he has. And so I don't know. I'm not I'm not sure where it comes from, but he has that that streak um and has that like fire. You know, he's got a fire that if you didn't know him, you know, you wouldn't know it, but I know his teammates and guys on the Warriors know it. Um so it's 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 a it's kind of a, a duality, right? He's got all these these the duality of being very calm and patient, but at the same time you know, that fire, that fire burns pretty hard. Yeah. And throughout the, the book, a season inside again, highly recommend reading it. If anyone yeah. hasn't, hasn't read it before, it's, it's fascinating. I think Muehlbach might be quoted in there once or once or twice, but, <laughs> yeah. but, but in it, you know, and it's funny seeing all these old characters that have now popped up in their, you know, post basketball careers, you know, the guys like the RC Bufords and the, um, Billy Kings of the world that later popped up in, in NBA circles, but, you know, had different roles back when they were in college. But what's really interesting is just how funny that, that Kerr seemed to be throughout the, the yeah. entire book, especially as someone we think about as, you know, this, this tragic figure, but on the court and in practice every day, just Take me through what it was like to to play against him all the time. I mean, you you touched on it a little bit just a little bit ago, but but actually going up against Kerr, just what he could do with the basketball and and what you foresaw for his future. You know, the the, the way it's interesting because the way the Warriors play now um, is the way he played, and you mm-hmm. wouldn't think that. You'd think, oh, maybe this. You know, you'd have this image of a slow. Um, you know, methodical guard that that just sat out there and had open shots, but he played at a, at an incredible pace. That was one of the things that was. And he wasn't, the, you know, he was. Look, he was very athletic, and everything. You know, people get lost, and this all is relative. Was he athletic compared to Russell Westbrook? No. Um, but is he athletic compared to every other person? You know, that doesn't play basketball. Yes. You know, very athletic. But he played with a great pace. And I always thought one of the, if you wanted to pick a guy to play pickup basketball with, it was Steve Kerr. He moved without the ball at incredible pace, screened, moved, passed. You know, he was, he was the classic. He caught it and made a decision right away. Loved to play pickup. In fact, I remember the first week we were at Arizona, we were playing pickup on the same team. And I mean, he, he just, I played really well. Cause it was like, man, he was just, he would set you up and he ran. If you played hard and if you moved, he would find you, you know, and, and it was one of those, you know, really intelligent guys, but he shot it so well, it was really hard to guard him because he shot it super quick. Again, a lot like, it was a lot like early on, you know, poor man, Steph. I mean, he shot it super quick. He wasn't as fast, you know, and didn't shoot it as deep as Steph back then, but 
he shot it so quick that if you ran up on him, he could get around you easily and was pretty good, you know, shooting it off the dribble when he did that. And so, like I said, like a guy like Kenny would embarrass you with his athleticism. Kerr never did that, but he just, he surgically just kind of took care of you. You know, you, you would look up and not be embarrassed, but he, in a scrimmage, he was five for five from three. And you're like, I didn't even leave him, you know, for <laughs> but five times, like just for a half a second. And he he nailed every one of them. Um, but it, like I said, I, and I remember watching him once, um, play it with the bulls. I, I went to a practice years ago when he was playing and I went to see him and I was sitting up top and that was in their run. I think when they won, what was it 70 or 71? It was that year. And watching him play, I, cause I remember thinking, God, this is going to be cool to see him playing with Jordan and Pippen and Rodman and to watch him in that system, you know, in Phil's system in the triangle and see him move and pass and cut, it was beautiful, you know, and, and, and like I said, he was so good in that open, wide open, you know, let things happen. And then you, and then his skill would take over when he got the open jumper. Really cool. I can, I can picture now your practices back at, at Arizona at that time. And what's really cool is you, you get there, Matt, and, you said it. I mean, Arizona had had a little bit of success, but you show up and all of a sudden, I guess you have the Midas touch too, because <laughs> just like your your high school years in California and, and Kansas yeah. City, all of a sudden, you know, here the magic happens. The 87-88 team goes 35-3, and 17-1 in conference. Um, well, I guess my first question in regards to that is, what was it? What was it like to play for Lute Olson during that time? You know, Lute, it's interesting you ask that question. When when Sean Miller was became the coach here, um, we were at a we were at kind of at a party where all the team kind of it's like the in August where a lot of guys came back and it was kind of his first sort of public appearance. And him and every single person on his staff came and asked me what was why what made Lute great. You know, what was it like playing for him? Kind of the same question you just asked and. It was interesting because I, I was trying to kind of think about it when I talked to him, and my answer now that I've thought about it is that he, if you watched his first 45 minutes of practice, it, it looked like a scene out of, you know, Hoosiers. It was like fundamental, you know, eighth grade practice, freshman year, you know, high school practice. I mean, jump stops and um, everything that you would do from basketball 101. And then if you watch the next half hour, of Lutz practice, it was kind of incorporating those drills into more things like two on two and three on three and two on one fast break and stuff like that. But if you watched the the last 45 minutes to an hour, we honestly looked like, you know, UNLV running rebels. I mean, we ran up and down. He yelled at every big guy, every play, if they didn't run, um, he wanted us to play up and down and score. And he was super progressive offensively. And I thought that, again, to use that same word I used a while ago, that duality of kind of the fundamental guy, but incorporating this this progressive, fast, you know, pace-type team was the magic that made him so good. And, you know, one of the things I, I've always been amazed with him, if you look at the players that played for him and played in the NBA, the 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 sort of spectrum of talent he was incredible with great talent Sean Elliott you know Richard Jefferson Andre Iguodala and he was incredible with guys that were 
you know, role players, Steve Kerr and Judd Bushler and, um, you know, I mean, Tom Tolbert wasn't a role player, but, you know, guys that you, some people weren't really sure they weren't going to make it. And those guys were incredibly successful just as much as the fantastic athlete. And again, I think that goes back to his ability to make everybody play the right way, but then let them play free. One of the guys that you didn't mention in either role role player category or superstar category is Bruce Frazier, who has <laughs> right. you know gained this national attention uh, for those in, in the know in basketball because he's sort of become the shot whisperer. Another guy who's been on the podcast and and the assistant coach for the Golden State Warriors you know, credited with helping out Steph Curry to reach next level in terms of his shooting and becoming probably the greatest shooter of all time. Clay Thompson isn't far behind Steph in that category. Draymond Green's a great shooter, Harrison Barnes. But also, I mean, this is a guy that, you know, Bruce and I talked about it while he was on the podcast, but worked out Steve Nash, uh, helped him become an excellent an excellent shooter, obviously worked out Kerr uh, as well. He, he That's how I think got, got somewhat started. Um, so your early interactions with, with Bruce Frazier uh, as members of the Arizona Wildcats. Well, well Bruce, you know, we, we call them Q and still call him Q. I think Steph and those guys, I'll probably call him Q now. Um, but he was, he was, um, he was one of the main reasons I went to Arizona. I mean, other than loot and and KO, you know, totally took care of me on my recruiting trip. He was, he was awesome. He was a senior that year. And then I got there next year. He was a student assistant and then a graduate assistant for the next two years. So had a ton of interaction with him. You know, he was, uh, his dad was a coach and so had a, had a great, you know, just a great feel for the game, uh, because of that. But what was a guy I knew he'd I knew he'd blossom at at, at Golden State because he's a guy that you know so many people in that in the business of basketball you know especially if you haven't made it to the big time or you're not well known yet they want to prove to everybody how great they are and he's a very kind of cerebral guy um, understands you know shooting and under and thinks about it and detailed about it but he's also a guy that you know doesn't try to doesn't try to tell you how great he is and super patient with how he kind of helps guys, but, but also just a great personality. So it was one of those guys, like I, I remember being in a slump my senior year and he was gone. He, he was, I think he was working in Hollywood and I called him and literally asked him to come out to practice and, and just come out for the weekend and hang out and like just his energy and his like good spirit. And then a little bit of, you know, maybe some talking about shooting, just, we would talk about it. Not, he would never tell me like, do this or do that. We just talk like, what's, what, what's wrong? Like, why aren't you feeling good or whatever? And, and that's to me, what's, what's made him incredible is he, he, he really is, it's almost like you say, the perfect word is, is kind of shooting whisper because he doesn't try to do too much. You know, he doesn't try to force anything on people and, uh, had, you know, just one of my best friends and, and, um, Super happy to see him succeed. Uh, now, granted, he's got some pretty good shooters to start with, and he's and he's always admitted that, obviously. And now, on top of that, you know, he's got KD that that's coming in, so he's going to be shooting with him too. There's no doubt he can get all the credit, though. He, he's deserving it, at least of some of it. 
So we might as well, you know, and the assistant coaches in the NBA, certainly one that took such an unusual path and, and people can go back and listen to the Bruce Frazier interview about how he got there, but remarkable path to, to get there ending up on, on the staff and obviously has been a, a very valuable piece to what the Warriors have done over the last couple of years. Matt, and talking about these other guys while you're in Arizona, I'd be remiss not to talk about just your development and obviously the career that you had. I mean, you know, I mentioned it off the top of the show. You know, here you are, a guy never lost at the McHale Center. You, you know, have this unbelievable string of success while you're there. And obviously you had good teammates, but Kevin O'Neill's the first one to always point out that a lot of your success came from just how hard you worked and that you were never given anything. So what do you remember about the workouts with KO and how he helped you reach that next level as a, as a college player? Well, I was kind of, you know, cruising through my freshman year and, you know, playing okay and, and not playing a lot in the games, but again, no expectations really. And, and we, our team was set and he he brought me into his office about midway through the year, maybe earlier, and just said and and was it really shocked me. He said, "Hey Matt, you're you're not progressing like we thought you would." And I was like, I when he said that, I almost like you know, I almost <laughs> I just almost fell over. And I said, "What do you mean?" He goes, "Well, you're just not playing well. You, you kind of suck right now." And and I was you know, and again we had a we had a relationship where half the time it was almost like. Um, you know, we would, we would get into it with each other. And so in some ways that wasn't shocking that he said that, but it kind of was too. I mean, he was really getting into me and he said, from this day forth, I'm going to be in you every play, every second, every pass, every shot, whatever it is. And it was really one of the best things that ever happened to me because he, cause he did that. And he was, he was kind of a ruthless, you know, coach at the time. I mean, he was really tough. And he, he, he took an, an interest because I was probably, you know, it was probably because I was his recruit and I wasn't playing well. And we would get into, and so from that day, um, I mean, everything we did and I did during the, he would just, I mean, he was uh, unmerciful to me. And we would almost get in a fight, I'm telling you, every other day. And, you know, like, you know, F-bombs back and forth and let's go, let's get in the locker room. I want to go, you know, let's, let's, let's throw down. And I mean, it was like that every day for the rest of the year. And it just, it, it just took me to a whole nother level, toughened me up, um, you know, made me super hungry. And it was, it was, I don't know, it was like, you know, the movie Vision Quest or something, you know, from <laughs> high school. It was just one of those things where it, 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 it was, it was like a passion, like his passion for the game and mine kind of met in kind of a weird way. And, and, uh, and then obviously loot, you know, as the great coach and, and, and all, and then playing with all these great players, you know, you're playing every day, you get better. That was one of the things I noticed from, from Kerr when I played with him after I was done and he'd been in the NBA for like seven years, and I played some pickup games. And I'm like, oh my god, he's gotten like I played against this guy every day, and he's gotten you know a hundred times better than he was. And that was the same for me. You just get better because you're playing against him and Sean Elliott and and great players every day. And so you kind of honestly, it gets and people that have played college know this, and and play in the pros, you you kind of sink or swim. You know, you get in those situations and you either figure it out or you just get behind really quickly. 
I mean, it's 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 not a it's not a situation where they're they're being super fun and you know go to a Sean Miller practice right now and try to figure out you know if you're a young guy it's not like they ease you into this and oh he's and he's a freshman he's a you know a nice guy and you know we're going to take care of him they 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 work you and I always remember that I always tell the story that my sophomore year the first tournament I played in the NCAA tournament I scored two points first game and we were heading to the locker room and O'Neill came over and he said he just got right into me and he said what what the hell was that you know you were horrible and I said something like you know kind of like AKO lay off you know that was my first game in the tournament and then he lost it on me you know started oh whiner and da 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 and like just got in me from like you know until we got on the bus and then I think I had like my best game you know all year the the next the next game so that was it was a great relationship and and a guy that you know really helped me help me get to the next level I I could not help but just start laughing when you tell these stories that at the time must have been horrific experiences for you to have a fiery Kevin O'Neill in your face. He's red faced, hairs popping everywhere. Yeah. And and meanwhile, these are these are scarring memories from your life, and I'm cracking <laughs> up because I can just picture angry KO. There's something yeah. about him that is yeah. so endearing to me. Oh, that's well, I, I've, I've I've told the story many times. At one time during practice, he 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 yelled at me, and I was holding the ball. We were we were like you know five on five half court, and he he said your your team, and he was it was always my team, you know the the scout team or whatever. And he's like your team sucks, Matt. And you guys, we'd we'd gone five possessions without a shot, and he said you guys can't even get a shot. And I uh, he said you couldn't even get a shot if you shot one here, and I was I was like forty feet out from the rim. And, you know, normally you're like, okay, like Coach Olson say, let's go. And you start passing the ball and run the play. And I said, screw you, KO. I'll get a shot right now. He's like, you won't get a shot. You don't have the guts to do that. You're, you're, you know, you're this and you're that. And I just bombed one from about 40. And, and, you know, like Lute looked at me like I was from Mars. Everybody else was like, they didn't even know what I was doing. And KO's like laughing at me. (laughs) So he just, that was it. That was like every day there was one of those stories. What was that relationship like between Lute Olson and Kevin O'Neill? You know, I think at that point, you know, Lute was in his prime. KO was young. You know, he was he was like like I think thirty or thirty one, and he was hungry. He was it was a great kind of combination. You had Lute that never cussed, was tougher than nails, but didn't really show it all the time. And then you had KO on the other end, like you said. You know, Lute's hair was perfect. Ko's was he was crazy man. You know, red faced. He was all over the place, and and it was kind of a good combination. You know, it was kind of a little good cop, bad cop, and then of course, you know, Ko then you know got a job uh, at Marquette as the head coach, and so it was it was a great it was it was a it was kind of just worked. You know, and and Lute let Ko get on us, and and it was it was a good it was a good combination. Last thing I want to ask you about Arizona, your triple-double game in the Pac-10 tournament. I've read about it. The story <laughs> is that, well, you you can take it for me. Give me how you ended up as the only player in Pac-10 or Pac-12 tournament history with a triple-double. Wait, you got to tell me what the story was. Oh, well, the, what's the story you heard? The story that I've heard is that you go into halftime and you hadn't played well in the first half and yeah. here all of a sudden uh 
they, they start reading some statistics about what players had in the game, and it turns out you have eight rebounds. So you could take it from there. Yeah, Loot used to, at halftime, he, he would read no stats other than rebounds. That was like his thing. And he, he usually did it, you know, to, to, to kind of like get on the big guys. And he would, he would have this way of doing it. Like he would, he would call the guy's name and give him like a sick look, you know, just like really condescending. And, you know, he, so he'd say like most half times, like Mulebach two and, you know, Bushler five and, you know, Brian Williams, he'd pause a one, you know, or something like that. <laughs> so he's, so he'd do that every halftime. So he's going through the, going through it. And I think it, I think, you know, he went to my name and he said, Mulebach eight or seven or something like that. And I'm like, I kind of was like, wow, I, don't, I, I didn't even realize I had that many rebounds. And I'd had a, a terrible first half, shot the ball terrible. I think I was 0 for 5 from the field. And I, I may, maybe I had one basket. I think I had three points. And so I, I had the rebounds. And I also then I started thinking, you know, I think I've got five or six assists in this first half. And, like, it, dawned, it actually dawned on me right then. Because I, I probably had my career high at halftime for rebounds. So that, would be, that would have been the hardest thing for me to do for a triple-double was the rebounds. And so um, I went out there, and I, I kind of had it in my mind <laughs> that I could do that. And uh, we were playing SC at the time, and I was guarding Harold Miner. So that was kind of, in a way, it was a great thing because I was so focused on guarding him. wasn't really thinking about offense. So I always call it one of the weakest triple-doubles of all time because – I ended up getting 10 or I think I got 11 rebounds and I had 10 assists and someone on the bench told me that I, that I had that, but I had like seven points. <laughs> so I was trying like, like my damnedest at the end to get some points uh, just to get the triple double. And I, I laugh cause like guys like, you know, Damon Stoudemire, I think had a triple double it was like 30, you know, 12 and 10 or something. And <laughs> so I finally, at the end, I, I made, I think I made a shot. I got to nine and then I actually shot a free throw. I had a one and one and I missed it. And I was like, oh my God. And and then it was the game was getting close to the end and I got fouled again. I had another one and one and I thought if I miss this, like I could uh, this is it. It was, it was kind of super pressure on me to make it and I, I made the free throw and I think I missed the second one. <laughs> so it was it was a triple double, but it was like you know a couple rebounds and assists and points away from being a, a triple single. So it was, uh, but it was fun. It kind of taught me a lesson that even though I thought I played horrible, because I honestly thought it was one of the worst games you know offensively that I had, but it kind of taught me the lesson that you know you can still you can still play well and and do other things. Wow. Well, it'll go down in history still as a as a triple double and again as the only one. So regardless of how many points you had that game or the fact that you weren't a great rebounder per se throughout your career, um, still remarkable that you pulled it off and obviously well deserved that, that you have that. Um, I think a lot of people who followed college basketball at the time and certainly Arizona fans I think when they look back at your career, obviously the one thing they're they're gonna say, and, and even people listen to this podcast, and you know, I, I can't stress how how good of a college basketball player that that you were, and I know you're humble about it, but but the truth is, you were an excellent player. You were awarded as such with these accolades, and certainly with with the team's winning record. Um, for people that don't know, 
why do you think you you well what's the reason that you didn't play in the in the NBA? Well, when I was when I was fit, I mean, there were probably two big reasons. The, the the first reason was I came in as a point and and that was my natural position. I played, you know, at 6-2 at a point and my sophomore year I just sort of because it, just by sort of the way it happened, I got moved over to the 2 and and played you know most of my career at the two at Arizona and you know if you're gonna if you're gonna play in the NBA at six two or six three as a two you better be the best shooter in the world that's kind of what Kerr was and you know I wasn't that and and so I think my natural position was was really to come in as a point I just when all that kind of happened I, I in some ways I had almost lost a little bit of my my touch, you know, my ability to to handle it at a like a extremely high level. And not that I couldn't handle it, but like to really handle it, you know, at NBA. So I think of someone like TJ McConnell that played for Arizona and, you know, excelled at the one and, you know, running the team and and you know, dishing it out and and that kind of thing. And that's kind of what I did, but when I got moved to the 2, a lot of that a lot of that I just wasn't doing it every day and I I kind of lost the you know, lost that, that skill to some degree. And the other thing was my senior year, you know, a lot of people in Tucson know I got really sick, um, after my, my career. And I had some sort of, you know, I was physically, you know, really messed up. And, um, in fact, it's actually interesting. I've talked to to Steve about, you know, some of the things he's gone through, you know, the headaches and, and, and some of the, you know, the health problems, but I had some, I had some really bad health problems that they, they, had trouble identifying. And, uh, so for about, honestly, for about 12 to 18 months, I was, I was like, you know, I just couldn't even play. And so the, the opportunities to play, you know, I had some NBA tryouts and, and of course, you know, had the opportunity to play overseas. They kind of, um, because of those two things just, just didn't happen. All right. So that doesn't happen, but you did still get involved with the pro game. Uh, you end up becoming a lawyer, and an agent, I yeah. assume in that order. Yep. Um, and so, and, and so you represent Lauren Woods, Eduardo Nahara, but to me, the most interesting player that probably anyone's ever represented, Leon Smith. So tell me yeah. about your Leon Smith experience. <laughs> well, so I was a business corporate kind of securities lawyer, and, um, I, you know, I think any of the, any guy that's like, that age and he's a lawyer and was involved in basketball people say hey you're going to be an agent and at first i said no way i you know it's not me and then i sort of got backed into it i there were some guys that came to me and and wanted to you know me to help them because i was a lawyer and help them overseas so i i said yeah so i helped some guys out and then i kind of inch by inch you know was doing some things in that area and i got a call from somebody in chicago that said leon smith wants to change agents um, you know, would you be interested? And I said, who's Leon Smith? <laughs> I didn't even know who he was. <laughs> and they said, oh, he was the 28th pick, the last pick in the first round, you know, in the NBA draft by the Dallas Mavericks. He was a high school kid. And I said, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. And I, I, um, I said, uh, sure, you know, I'd, I'd be happy to, I'd be happy to look at that. It sounds incredible. So I met with him. He was a, he was a foster kid who had a, a, a foster family in Chicago that, that was looking after, you know, that basically raised him and he ended up hiring me and it, the, the craziness ensued after that. <laughs> it was, it was a really crazy deal. Um, he was a guy that, 
the, the Mavericks drafted him. He was not ready, you know, for the NBA at the time. He just wasn't, you know, didn't have the life experience and wasn't mature enough. He was kind of a young Sean Kemp is what he was. He had Sean Kemp talent. He was ridiculously athletic, six eight, six nine, could run and jump and knew the game and, and could have been a fantastic NBA player. And, you know, he he wanted to play for the NBA. The Mavericks wanted him to play in the CBA or the IBL or one of these lower leagues. And I ended up kind of working out a deal with the Mavericks. And, you know, initially he was going to play. He was, I you know, I wanted him to get paid and he was going to play, you know, maybe in one of the lower leagues, but he just ultimately didn't want to. Um, ended up going to Dallas and, and really had a, you know, a difficult time. Uh, after a couple weeks, there was a there was a you know a scare that you know that he had allegedly uh, tried to commit suicide and um, you know was in the hospital and I had to go out there and you know take care of him and kind of be there and you know and he just he just really struggled at that point and and wasn't like I said wasn't ready for the NBA um, but at any rate um, you know I was I remember like literally just getting into the business and all of a sudden I was you know, sitting at a, at a conference table, 30 feet long, you know, with the NBA and the NBPA and the president, CEO and vice president of the Dallas Mavericks. And I was like, what is going on here? <laughs> you know? So, and he was, you know, he was a really good kid. Um, just like I said, was not ready. And so it was, it was, it was a pretty tough situation. Last thing I want to ask you about Matt is the fact that you have this relationship with Steve Kerr you have this relationship with Bruce Frazier and Luke Walton was obviously another Arizona Wildcat who you knew was a member of the Golden State Warriors as well. So you have all these Arizona connections, Iguodala playing for for uh, the Warriors as well. So there are all these Arizona connections on the team. And so you've gotten to take a look behind the curtain. You know, we see 73 wins. We see... Steph Curry on billboards, you know, all, all these these things that go along with having the the big marquee and and being the the prime team in the in the NBA that everyone's talking about. I'm curious about the practices and when you go, you've been around some of the greatest shooters of of all time in in, in Steve Kerr and you know some of the other guys that you've played against and with through the years, but Steph Curry in practice. What's that like? Well, I, I think that, um, you know, it's not totally unlike watching Steve when he was in practice. I mean, it, it's uh, it, the, the difference is um, I, certainly he has more range. I mean, Steph has more range. And, you know, I, I've sort of in the last year or so called him the, the Roger Bannister of, of shooting because, I think it was Roger Bannister that broke the four-minute mile. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, before Curry in the last two years, no one ever thought to shoot a 30-footer. No one ever shot, thought, you know, they should step back uh, five feet behind the line and take a shot. And if you think about it, if, if, you're, if, you, have, if you have range, you know, if you have range, like my range to 24 feet to 22 feet is not that much different to 26. and you know, I'm just not as good a shooter as those guys at 22 feet. But if, if their range at 22 is, is, I mean, if their percentage at 22, if you just go back five or six feet, 
it's not as crazy as you think because there's sort of a there's sort of a just mechanical you're using the same mechanics and I've just said that he he changed the way shooters looked at that. I mean, if we shot a shot like that in college, it, it would be you know, loot would have taken us out because it would have been crazy. Like, what are you doing shooting five feet behind the line? And and so I think that I think his ability to shoot with range, and is really his ability to do it in the game. Like when I watch the practices, yeah, it's it's sickening to watch him make you know fifty out of fifty two from. 25 feet. I mean, that's, it's hard to describe, you know, how good that is. Um, but again, like when Kerr was doing it, it, you know, in, in the pros, I mean, he was not that far behind that he could do that, but he just couldn't do it from 26 feet and he couldn't do it in the game with people on him off the dribble. I, you know, I watch those guys, I watch clay. Sometimes I watch clay and Steph and think who is the better shooter. If you just are in practice, you know, throwing them balls. But there's no one ever that's been the combination of Steph off the dribble and a stationary shooter if someone just passes it to him than him. And I don't know how, you know, it's it's just, you know, how, do, how does he do it? I don't know. It's it's all that practice and, and God-given hand-eye that's maybe the best hand-eye hand on the whole on the whole earth, really. Um, but his, his uh, the other thing I would say is his attention to detail. You know, his attention to how he warms up, how he does it, you know, how he goes about it. Um, and, and then ultimately, Adam, I mean, it's kind of what we all as basketball players wished we could play with all the time. He plays free all the time. And I, I don't know how he does that, but it's it's 100% free. There, there's no, you know, there's no hesitation. There's no remembering the bad you know, kind of the slump I was in last week or whatever. And and that's that to me, the mental part of that, that belief um, and, you know, what Q works with him every day and what he's been able to do on his own. I mean, it's, it's, it's the best of all time. Well, to almost bring it back full circle. I mean, you talked about your experience with, with Steve Kerr and just the kind of personality he is and was a lot of that has to be chalked up to, to his coach, right? I think so. I mean, the numbers he's put up, he didn't put up before Kerr got there, but, you know, could he have put him up with other coaches? Yeah. I mean, arguably he was still the most, you know, the best shooter out there, but I I totally agree with that. The way Kerr has coached this team, you know, again, kind of this like, you know, playing with compassion and, and playing without judgment and playing for fun, just having fun and not, you know, not stressing out about, you know, every day and misses and makes and things like that. It is. I mean, it's 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 the way they play. The, the They play that, again, it almost goes back in a way to loot when I described loot, that, you know, play the right way, you know, and Kerr gets on them all the time about turning the ball over, but at the same time, play free. And if you can play free and loose and, and just, you know, open it up, that's that's the ultimate way to play. And, and, and he's, he's gotten, you know, through that offense and through the other great players, he's gotten those guys to play like that. Well, it's sort of how I feel running through a podcast with uh, you, my good friend, Matt <laughs> Mulebach. I appreciate the marathon session, Matt. And uh, yeah, that was, I don't, I don't think anybody made it past 45 minutes, but it was, it was fun being on and, and uh, really appreciate Adam, especially for someone that 
I, I don't know anyone more passionate about basketball than you. So, so really love talking hoops with you. Oh, well, same here. And I knew that we'd be in for a long one uh, with all the great stories that you have and, and some questions I've always been, been dying to ask you, although I usually do get a chance to ask most of the questions. And if anybody out there wants to reach out to you, ask you some questions about Arizona hoops or Steve Kerr or what have you, uh, they can follow you on Twitter at Matt Muehlbach. That's at Matt M-U-E-H-L-E-B-A-C-H. It's one of the first things that I that I did when I, I got to know you is really try to memorize how to spell your last name. Uh, so <laughs> many you. people that wrong. You're welcome. You're welcome. But but Matt Muehlbach, I, I really, really do appreciate your time, the great stories, and um, just everything that uh, you brought to the podcast today. It's 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 lived up to to what I was expecting and, and that's been a whole lot. So thank you so much. Yeah, you're welcome. Love love doing it. Awesome. So that's Matt Muehlbach, uh, one of my all-time favorite people, certainly a tremendous guest here on the Great Point Podcast. Again, you can find Matt on Twitter at Matt Muehlbach. You can find me, Adam Stanko, on Twitter at Liz, And you can find this podcast on Twitter at Great Point Pod. Remember to subscribe to the podcast on iTunes or wherever you might be listening and uh, any rating on iTunes would be great. Just tell us what you, you think of the podcast, hopefully a five, but However you feel about it, uh, that'll do it for us this week. We'll catch you next time.